we're going to start chapter 5 of the book of 2 Corinthians. You should know by now uh, why we're coming through uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, how it fits into our overall uh, scheme of what we're doing with the Bible. Uh, and you also should know that the outline of each chapter of this book really forms the book that teaches us about ministry. Each chapter deals a particular aspect of, of the overall concept of ministry. It's a vital book, very important book. So far as we've come through, we've learned that chapter 1, even though it has a lot of great things in it, chapter 1 basically teaches us and shows us that the ministry is nothing more than than suffering. You and I going through what we go through in life, but having the wherewithal to process it through the Bible and learn from our mistakes and then help others through their suffering as God has helped us. Chapter 2, we saw one of the greatest concepts, I guess if not the single greatest concept of the aspect of ministry, and that's the forgiving spirit of the minister. Being able to forgive somebody and uh, uh, for what they've done either to you or to whatever. You know, the aspect of being able to have that forgiving spirit. Chapter 3, talk about the proof of our ministry. And that is the people that uh, we work with, the people that you've won to Christ, or the people that uh, God has put in your life, that you've invested your life with. And then we just finished chapter 4, which is a great chapter. And in chapter 4, we saw the biblical definition of, of our, what our ministry should be. Uh, commending ourselves to every man's conscience and not handling the Word of God deceitfully and, and preaching the truth. Now, today in chapter 5, uh, the title of this chapter, if you're putting these in as you go through 2 Corinthians, then you certainly should. Um, this goes along what we talked about Thursday night, about how you break the Bible down by chapters. Here it is. I'm going to give it to you. And by the time we're done with this book, you'll have them all. But in chapter 5, we're dealing with our, 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 our perspective of the ministry. What does that mean? How we should really view and look at our ministry in light of probably the greatest single doctrine uh, in the Bible for you and for me, and that is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I told you last week that there's, there's different kinds of, of styles of preaching. Last week, I, I gave you a, an example of, of expository preaching, going through verse by verse. And I think the week before that, I, I showed you just good down-home, tear-up-the-place preaching, and, you know, yeah. And, but there's also times when you don't do either of those. And there's times that the circumstances or the situation dictates that you just talk. And, uh, and preaching may try to weave its way in, but for the most part, it's not something where you start out at 60 miles an hour, by the time you're halfway through, you're at 110, and by the time you're, you're finished with it, you're going Mach 4 with your hair on fire. It's not quite like that. But, you know, and, I, and I'll tell you why. I want to be careful with this chapter today, at least starting out with it, and probably through the whole thing. Because I don't know of another subject in the Bible as a pastor that I have to preach on that frustrates me more than the judgment seat of Christ. And what frustrates me about it, I think, is the fact that I, you know, I'm a people person. I love people. My whole life has been people. Um, you know, that's uh, just the way God made me. And the thing that frustrates me so many times is to see people who are God's people who have the ability to really be something for God, but just watch them throw it all away. Boy, if you look around you in your life and the people that are in your life, you see over and over again uh, what, uh, 
uh, what I tell you all the time, how that life is choices. And it only takes maybe one bad choice to ruin your life. I was talking to Missy, uh, Bill's wife, this morning, and we were talking about a particular situation, and I, I gave her one of my famous sayings, and I said, they're going to put, I said to her, I said, before I told her this, I said, now they're going to, I'm going to tell you, you hear me saying that, they're going to put this on my tombstone. We talked for about 10 minutes, and I gave her about nine more. She said to me, she says, when you die, you're going to have to have a really big tombstone with all the different things that you say on it. But one of the things I tell you all the time is life is choices. And I think the thing that is really hard for me as a preacher, preaching on the judgment seat of Christ, is because how simple it is. Honestly, folks, there isn't any reason on this planet why everybody in this room this morning shouldn't walk away with the judgment seat of Christ with everything that God had for you. It's not like it's some great hard thing that you can't ever get to. It's probably the simplest thing in the Bible. But the frustrating part of it is, is that uh, so many of God's people are just never going to do it. They're going to miss it completely. And Paul, uh, Paul understands how important it is. And he writes two books, and two books that he writes, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, uh, he deals with it and he defines the most important teaching. And I'm not kidding you. For you and for me as the child of God. I know there's lots of things that's important, and I preach about a lot, but you put them all in one basket. The number one doctrine and teaching that's going to affect you more than anything else is going to be understanding and the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul takes two books to define it for us and, and, uh, and how important it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then where we're at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, for those of you that are are paying attention, those are your two definitive passages in your Bible on the judgment seat of Christ. There'll never be any. You'll find other things that will add to it, but there'll never be two greater chapters that define uh, the, every aspect of that. And I, I know of no other doctrine for the Christian or the Christian church in the Bible, as I said, is more important than this subject. Fundamentally, it's the basis for everything that we do. Every Christian should be, you hear me talk about this also will be on my tombstone, honey. You hear me talk about look around, look behind, look ahead. Every Christian ought to look ahead to that aspect of the judgment seat of Christ because uh, it's vital. It's vital. And I, I know today, you know, that I, I understand my responsibility as a pastor. I really do. And that's why I'm trying to approach this from a, maybe a different aspect than I would because sometimes, you know, a little change up is good. Uh, you can preach hard at people so many times and people just kind of, you know, get numb to it. So it's always good to be able to change it up. But I, I know that as a pastor, uh, what my responsibility is, and really the responsibility of all pastors uh, to their churches and their people. And I, and, and I know that I will give an account someday for my stewardship, and as pastors will all over this country, for their stewardship of being a pastor over the people of God. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. Nothing that I know of, nothing that I can find throughout the whole Bible will a pastor be held accountable for more than his teaching and doctrine, or in this case, the lack of it on the judgment seat of Christ. Understanding this concept and staying focused on it, honestly, will put every single issue in your life and my life and our church into proper perspective. It is without a doubt the single most important teaching uh, in all of the Bible for you and for me. And yet, I, I guarantee you, as I speak here this morning, I, I say it all the time. I've been around in the ministry for many, many years. I, I know how it goes. I know the system. I know pastors. I know preachers. I know most of the preachers in this town just by association of being here for almost 40 years. 
And I can guarantee you today that I bet there's not been two or three pastors in this city that ever keeps this issue before their people. It's a great injustice, ladies and gentlemen, that's done to God's people that pastors someday are going to give an account for. And I, I, know, I know when I stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, I have no illusions about me and what a mess I am. And I have no illusions of grandeur that I'm going to, uh, there's so many things I'll have to give an account for and many screw-ups in my life. Uh, I, I don't expect to necessarily get anything. But the bottom line is this. There's one problem that I'll never be, I'll never have with the judgment seat of Christ. And there's one thing that they won't be able to tag to me as a pastor that I didn't do. And that is to keep the most important day for a child of God before you in your life. Because I'm telling you, it's a day that's coming. And I guarantee you, you couldn't find two or three pastors in this city that keep the issue before their people. I bet you couldn't find in the last two years there'd be pastors that preached on it, taught on it. Uh, the, uh, their people are oblivious to it. Every question you ask on Thursday night Bible study, I'm looking to work that angle in about the judgment seat of Christ. Every sermon I preach, if there's an opportunity to walk down that road even for 30 seconds and drop, the, drop it on you, I'm going to. So I understand my responsibility as a pastor, I understand responsibilities of pastors in general. Yet in spite of pastors' failures to teach it, I want to tell you something else. And this is where, I, I'm, this is all an introduction till we get to this. And this is not going to be deep today. I'm not planning on some deep thing. We'll get into it in every aspect uh, down the line in the weeks to come. But that's not my goal today. My goal today is to give you a basic fundamental outline of you understanding how this thing really works. And in spite of the failures of pastors to teach it, there's also a real failure on God's people's part and, uh, uh, concerning this number one doctrine. You know, and this is where my uh, frustration in the ministry comes in. This is where I get frustrated in the ministry uh, with God's people simply because God's people don't listen today. God's people, for the most part, don't listen to anything. I don't know how many times uh, people that, and I know we're all human, we make mistakes, and this is not a condemnation on anybody in particular. Uh, you know, it, it's just the truth. And a G Christianity in general, nobody listens to anybody today. Nobody does. And, uh, you know, uh, my frustration of, in my approach of getting this message to you is like, what else can I do? How else can I try? I mean, I'll preach on it every chance I can. I'll tie it into every question, as I said, on Thursday night's Bible study. But God's people today, for the most part, just don't care about anything that has to do with God or the Bible. And the most frustrating part of the ministry today is the fact that God's people just will not listen you know, I look at Christianity today, and I've told you this before about the great parallels to Christianity today in the nation of Israel. And right before the nation of Israel went into captivity, Bible says in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, that they had a great famine. And this famine was the famine that really caused them to go into the captivity. And, uh, you know, you know about the captivity in about 721, what, Shennacherib comes down and the king of Assyria and takes the northern tribes into captivity. And about 606 or somewhere around there, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and takes the southern tribes. And the nation of Israel ceases to exist. They now have been taken captive by two world powers and they'll never meaningfully, get this, that happened in 606 B.C., 600 years before Jesus Christ showed up. Add that 600 years plus the next 2,000 years, that's 2,600 years. For 2,600 years, 
Israel has been worthless and powerless because of that captivity. And yet back in Amos chapter 8, down there in some great places, like in verse 11, it talks about a famine that was going on in Israel's time. And you might think when you hear the word famine, you're thinking of food. And you're thinking of water. But that's not the kind of famine they had. The Bible says the famine they had was a famine of hearing the word of God. I've heard pastors quote that verse before in a famine of the word of God. They always like to say, that's not what the verse says. The verse says hearing of the word of God. They had the word of God. They just weren't listening to it. And that's the famine we face today. It's a famine in this church. It is. And this don't pretend for any stretch of the imagination that everybody in this church really cares about doing anything for God. I mean, let's just be honest about it. I would nice if it would happen, but it's not going to happen. And, this, and the frustrating part of that is some of you have so much to offer. But you know what's happened? You've got, there's a famine in your life. There's a famine in this church. This church is probably... I'm just speaking now. If I'm speaking out of line, then then I'll correct me on it. But this church is probably the best Bible teaching church in this city. Now, I may not, maybe somebody out there, I may be saying, boy, he really thinks a lot of himself. No, I just think a lot of the book. And nobody even believes the book anymore. But in this church, with the Bible you get, there's a famine. There's a famine of hearing the Word of God. I'm just telling you. I'm just talking with you today. Now, when the nation of Israel quit hearing and quit listening for God, that's when they went into the captivity. And that's why some of you can't ever get ahead in life. That's why some of you have the struggles that you have. You know why? You have been taken captive, just like the nation of Israel. The world has come and captivated you and hauled you off. And the tragedy with you and the great parallels, just as Israel has been worthless for the last 2,600 years, may I say it? Can I say it? You're worthless. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not mad at you. I'm just telling you, God saved you for a purpose, folks. And if you're not fulfilling that purpose, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14. Jesus spoke to them in Israel. And when they were in their, when they were in their mess, I mean, they were in a mess. Now they're completely run by the Roman Empire. They're upside down and everything They're only a few years away from taking the Savior that God sent them and killing them. You know why they did that? You know why the Jews took the Savior that God sent them and actually killed him? You know why they did? Because they wouldn't listen to what God said. You know why you do some of the same things in your life and God's people today all over this world that claim to be saved do the exact same thing? I mean, when they walked down that road carrying that cross, they cursed at him. They made fun of him. Some of you do the exact same thing. You take his name in vain every day at work, and you claim to be a child of God. You know what you do? You're no different than they are. You'd kill him too. You know why they did that? Because they weren't listening. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14 says, Jesus said, And in them is Israel, in them is fulfilled the prophet of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and not understand, and seeing ye shall see. And not perceive. That's Christianity right there today. Christianity doesn't hear what the Word of God says. God's people will not listen to what the book says. They just won't. Uh, The Bible, uh, you know, in the Bible time, this is called the great captivity. And boy, God's people were in a great captivity today. There is an absolute unbelievable void. Maybe you don't see it from your your little parishioner seat. 
But looking at this church and looking at Christianity all over the thing, and this church, as good as it is, really isn't any different than any other church other than the Bible that we have and what we preach. But it's proof that in the day and age that we live in, you can have the greatest Bible in the world. You can believe the Bible upside down and inside out. You can have the King James Bible, have the Holy Spirit of God, have thousands of people saved, have all kinds of ministries on fire for the Lord and people plugged in and still are always going to be a group of people that will not listen. And when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, it gets real frustrating for me. It gets real personal because I honestly, I mean, you may think I'm being mean today. Give me a few more minutes. You'll wonder when I'm talking to you. If I would preach this, blood would shoot out my eyes. Because it frustrates me. It frustrates me that you have so much to offer to God, and yet you want to keep it for yourself. But you're not going to listen to me. There's a void of being able to process the truth, the common sense, in this fairy tale world that most of God's people live in. God's people today just won't hear anything. They won't listen to what anybody's got to say. I see it all the time. Many of you parents will simply not listen about dealing with your children. You won't. I see it every day and in everything. Some parents simply will, won't listen to anything about their kids. And some of you, I love you to death, and your kids are sitting here this morning. Some of you are going to lose these little kids sitting next to you to the world. I'm just telling you. I, 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 you're going to lose these kids. Well, I hear parents say it all the time, all the time. Uh, they'll come in to me and they'll, their first words out of their mouth. I'll say, what's going on? And, the first, and I'm kind. I don't always say back to you what I want to say back to you because I got sense. I think there's other ways to help you sometimes and just when you're having a tough time and I know you're having a tough time because you have done some things wrong. A lot of times it's easier for me not to say what needs to be said, but work it around and come in from another angle to say it without being so harsh about it. Because I'm sensitive to you. Because I love you. But parents will come in all the time and they'll say, well, my kid, I say, what's going on? My kid won't listen to me. And I feel like saying back to them, Have you, don't you know why? Do you know why your kid won't listen to you? The answer is because... You won't listen to me. It's just that simple. You want your kids to do what's right, but you don't want to do what's right. Oh, I'm preaching. <clears throat> Let me get in my liberal mode. It's simple, mom and dad. You won't listen to me, or more important, what the Word of God says that I'm preaching to you. You won't listen to what the final authority says on, on parenting. Some of you are making absolutely terrible, horrendous mistakes with your children. And in time, it's going to be irreversible. Somebody said a couple of months ago, I think it's time for you to teach child training again. My answer to them was, why? They won't listen. And I don't mean to trump, blow my own horn here, and if I'm out of line, I'm out of line. But I would, I would think that maybe I'm dead wrong on this, but I would think you'd have to look a long time ago, a long way to find somebody who puts as much into their people as I put into you. Amen. Now, you don't have to amen. It may be not true, but in my mind, I think it is true. 
But I like thinking myself doing good things, so I don't know. <clears throat> but the bottom line is this. Do you know how boring and tiring it gets when you pour yourself in and pour yourself in and pour yourself in and give and give and give? And many times it's nothing more than repetitive mistakes that you never learn from the first time. People don't listen. Somebody says you had a cheap towel training. Why? You didn't listen the first time. The book's back there. If I taught it a hundred times, some of you would never listen. There's a great famine. Some of you have lost your kids. Now, in that particular case, that's a tragedy, but there's always something that you can do, and there's a process that you can input to get them back, or at least give them the best chance to come back. After a while, you know, it's their choice. I think the number one biggest mistakes parents make when they lose their kid is they try to go back and do when they're 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 what they should have been doing when they were 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then they scratch their head and say, it doesn't work. No, it won't work. That time is gone. You can't deal with them at that point. The time to get them to do what you wanted to do won't be at 16, 17, 18, and 19. It was back when. But if you didn't do that, don't delude yourself to thinking that you can do it now and get some kind of result. You're going to burn yourself out. Now, there is some things that you got to do, and there are some things that you can do. You ain't going to listen to me. You're not. You know why some of you got the problems you got in your Christian life? And I love you today. But you know why some of you got the issues you got in your life and you can't get off square one in your life? I'll tell you. It's because you won't listen to me about the friends you hang out with. People that will take from you everything that God has for you. Hey, the friends we keep in our lives will either encourage you for God or discourage you for God. We build our, we build our, our prayer groups in that very same concept out of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, that says, iron sharpeneth iron. Hey, the people you put in your life will either sharpen you to be better for God or they'll take the edge off of you to be better for God. I don't know how much simpler it can get. But you don't listen to me. And many times, it's Christian friends. Hey, know this. May I say this? I'm just talking. There's people in my own church who believe this Bible, who do great things. We do great things. God's got a great blessing on us. There's people in this church that I would steer a young Christian away from. You know why? I don't want them to turn out like you. That's why. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I'm just telling you. I mean, some of you are worldly, you're selfish, you're ministry denying, you're self-serving, and yet you're a Christian. And I don't want young Christians growing up with your role model. I mean, I get somebody that comes in, they get plugged in, they get excited about ministry, and then, you know what, they start pounding around with you, they start hanging around with you, and you know what you do? You're not helping me in ministry. We're buddies, we're friends, I love you. But at the end of the day, you're not helping me build people in ministry. You're taking away what I'm trying to put in their life. I don't need that. I don't need that at all. 
And I'm ashamed to say that in this church. But you know what? This church is no different than any other church. You ain't going to listen to me. You're not. I mean, you know what? You'll hurt them. You won't help them. You, you just, you, 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 everything you do, you got one foot in the world and one foot in the Bible. And when somebody comes in that isn't smart enough to smell you out yet, you look good on the outside, just you're never around when anything really needs to be done. But you look good. I don't know what to tell you. The reason why some of you will never do anything for God is real simple, folks. It's the people you continue to associate with. But you know what? Hey, I preach on until the cows come home. I'm not sure what time the cows will be home, but I preach on it. That's the same. I, I preach on it until the cows come. Nothing ever changes in your life. You know why? Because you won't listen. These people will rob you of what God has for you. I stand up here and tell you how important it is to get in ministry and get involved and get in that book. Their lifestyle, by not doing it, shows you how unimportant it is. And let me ask you a question. Which way you think human nature is going to fall? You ain't helping me. You may be helping yourself to a lot of things, but you ain't helping me. Many of you husbands, you know what? You won't listen about how to deal with your wives. You won't listen to me. How many times have I taught the marriage class? How many times have I spent time with, with this guy or this person or this couple? Many husbands, they won't ever listen to what they got to do with their wife. Well, they know it all. They got it all the answers. You know, don't tell me. I got it all down. You know, yeah, yeah. And that's why your marriage is a disaster. Your kids are going to be a disaster. It's just a mess. Many Christians won't listen on how to build a meaningful Bible-based relationship with another person. Uh, how many times have I been through it? I've laid it out over and over and over again. You won't listen. You'll lose everything God has for you. You'll lose your millennial inheritance. You'll lose your rewards. All because you hooked up with Bozo the Clown who cared nothing about God, who cared nothing about the Word of God, or Bimbo Betty, who just will take everything from you. No reference to my sweet Betty I have back here. <laughs> I'm clarifying that. She's my buddy. Not that Betty. That's a good Betty. You know, if I were to use Bimbo Charlotte, it wouldn't have rhymed. <clears throat> You'll hook up with some clown or some gal who cares nothing about it. And, and let me tell you something. And I go back to saying this, but you don't listen. When you get saved, the devil knows what God wants you to do. And he's going to put every clown, every person in your life who is going to take away from what God wants you to do. You ought to be, this will go on my tombstone too. You ought to be smarter than the problem. It's going to be a whale of a tombstone. <clears throat> you won't listen to me. I mean, you just won't. I mean, how many bad relationships has it been now? How many? How many marriages do you got to go through? How many bad relationships do you got to have that you start thinking, hmm, maybe there's something wrong in my thinking process here. 
But nobody listens today. The mark of this godless generation of, yes, Christians. They're deaf to the things of God. To you, it doesn't matter what God wants from you. For you, it only matters what you want from God. I, I was reading a book this week that I, I've had it for years. And uh, I wish I could tell you the name of it, but the cover has been gone about 25 years ago. But it's a book about the process of the downfall of America. This guy was a great guy. He had a lot of insight. And he wrote about the progress of America's demise. And he basically breaks it down into three chapters. He talks about our founding fathers, where the Bible was the foundation. And in that founding father, that early time, uh, he, he brings to light some of the great uh, men who, who believed the Word of God, who loved God and wanted this country based and, and had some real standards in families. And he cites Patrick Henry, who you all should know that in 1775 stood up there when he was faced with all of the things and was going to be hung. And he, he basically said uh, when he was given a chance to back out of the thing, he looked at them and said, give me liberty or give me death. And he writes in that book that that was a great generation. It started in the 17, middle of 1700s. And then he talks about the second generation of America that starts around the Civil War and runs up to about 1950. And he says, this is where after the Civil War started, it was about rights, people's rights. That it was about, it processed in time into Christian rights, civil rights, human rights, gay rights, and everybody's got their rights. And he says, this went from about 1850 to about 1950. And he says, where Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. He says, this generation just simply said, give me liberty. And then he brought America up to the day and age that we live in, 1960 to 2012. And he says, where Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And the next generation said, give me liberty. The generation today just says, give me. That's Christianity today. Christianity in your life is not about what you give back to God. You know it's not. It's about what God's going to do for you. Truman Dollar, who I worked with for many, many years, and I really like Truman. I learned a lot from him. And uh, he's dead now, but he'll always be held in my heart as one of the men who really taught me a lot of things about ministry. And I had a kind of a unique relationship with him, and he, he, we spent some time, a lot of time together when I would drive him places, and when he would speak around in Missouri, and, and I'd ask him questions about the ministry, and he'd just kind of unload a little bit, not a whole lot, but enough that I picked up the nuggets. He said something one time, and I'll never forget. We were talking on a particular subject, and he said this. He says, Bob, let me tell you something about the ministry. He says, people in the ministry, Christians, will never remember what you did for him yesterday. All they want to know is what are you going to do for me today? Boy, I thought to myself, that's some wisdom right there. That's it. Give me. Give me. People don't listen. They really don't. Many of you refuse to listen to me when I tell you about what your responsibility is to this church as a member. Some of you just never get it. You won't listen. You know, there's coming a time here to, in the future, not too far off probably, when we're going to be faced with a church with some real hard decisions. 
One of the church decisions we're going to be faced with is the aspect or the process of downsizing our church. Yeah, you heard what I said. There's one event coming. There's one event coming and nobody's seeing it. And I'm not thinking it is your responsibility to see it. It's my responsibility to see it, look behind, look around, and look ahead. And there's one thing coming. And it can happen any day. But it's coming. There's, there's, there's something coming that, uh, and I ain't going to get into it today. Uh, it is something coming. But there's, there's, there's one major event, one issue coming our way that nobody sees it coming. But for sure, we are going to have to deal with as a church body. And we're going to have to make some hard decisions. And we're going to have to consider the prospect of downsizing this church. Uh, it's not something that I want to do. It's something that the situation, when it comes, is going to demand that it happens, if that's the way it goes. It, it ain't going to be my decision. It'll be your decision, but we won't have much of a decision to make. But, but it's incredible. And when that day comes, oh, I think about it, because I know it's coming. Uh, and I, I, I just, in my mind, I know people, how this thing is. Uh, when this day comes, oh man, I can hear it now. I can hear now how much you love this church. I can hear now how much this church really means to you. I can hear now you saying, well, where will I go? What will I do? Some of you will take the other side and you'll be so angry. How could you do this? Why would Bob even consider such a thing? Well, I'm going to leave the church over this. Yes, you are. Hey, pal, when the day comes, if it goes that way, I didn't do anything. It was your lack of doing anything that brought it about. I told you many, many times, you don't listen to me. I'm not, and right now everything's going fine. But I've told you and told you and told you that I'm not going to stand up here and beg for you to give money to this church. Now, it's an insult to God. It's an absolute insult. I've told you time and time again, and we're not broke by any stretch of the imagination, but there's something coming our way. It's going to be a game changer in this church. And I refuse at that point, right now it's fine, but I refuse at that point to go any farther with where we're at right now. I'm just telling you. But nobody listens to me. How many times I've stood up here and told you? I'm not the kind of guy like most pastors that spend 45 minutes talking about give money and then the next service, the son of give my money and right down the line. Hey, look, here's the bottom line. It's your church. If it isn't worth supporting financially, then it's just shut the sucker down. That's where I'm at with it. That's exactly where I'm at with it. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. And I don't have any emotions in it. I, I, honestly, believe it or not, for the most part, I really do practice the principles that I tell you. And one of them I always tell you is never take things personal. And it, 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 you know, to me, and, and maybe you, I think many of you know me, who I really am. Some of you probably don't really understand where, who I am, where I'm at with all this. But let me just put my cards on the table this morning. 
I'm nice. I put up with a lot of stuff. I, 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 we deal with a lot of things. I love everybody. I give everybody umpteen chances. I don't care where you've been, what you've done. I'll put up with somebody uh, uh, till uh, I mean forever. I'll help you no matter if it takes a thousand times and you still don't get it. You know where I'm at with that good conscience toward God thing. I'll just stick with you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But at the end of the day, let me tell you something. When you scrape off all this outside covering of Bob Alexander, you got one thing inside. It's a man with a mission. I eat, sleep, drink, think, and I'm consumed about one thing. And that is doing this church the way God wants it to done and fulfilling this mission. That's all I'm about. I'll put up with a lot of things. Bob say, well, you know, Bob, pretty dumb. He just keep, I just keep hosing him over. Hey, you know what? I am probably dumb. But you know what? I don't care. All that will work itself out in the wash. Bottom line is, deep down inside, I'm about one thing. God saved me for ministry. God built this church, gave it to me for ministry. And that's all I care about. Bottom line, if I got a church of 250 or 300 and I got 150 that's only doing the job, to me, it's a no-brainer. That's me, oh. Dump the freeloaders, man. Nothing personal. I got a job to do. Oh, but oh, I, 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 I can hear it now. Oh, I can just hear it. Oh, when that day comes, it is coming. I'm not sure how it's all going to go, but I'm just telling you. And I, I've never said anything about it. haven't talked to one person in this church about it. But I'm, I'm just talking about the greatest event in your life, the judgment seat of Christ, and how God's people don't listen. I tell you all the time what this church is, what we got to do, what our responsibility is. You don't listen. I can hear it now. Well, I can hear it whining now. Oh, I'll tell you. What will I do? What will I do? What will I do? Well, I got some, I don't know. Phil Hopper's building an $80 million auditorium. Sure he's got room for you. I hear Pete Nugent's got a lot of room. I hear Graceway wants to give you grace. And I know Ray Stewart's always looking for a few good men. Hey, come on. Can we talk? Amen. What do you do at home when your bushes and your trees get so big they're not functional anymore? Or in gardening to make your tomato plants get more tomatoes. I'll tell you what you do. You cut them back. You prune the limbs. You trim down the bushes. You crop the trees. That's what you do. Well, come on. Your own doctor tells you and me what we need to do, and I hate going to the doctor. And I hate him telling me this. And I know you do. Every time we go there, he says, you need to lose that ugly, unhealthy, excess weight that you're carrying around that absolutely puts a strain on your heart and does nothing for you. Well, even he's got to figure it out. You know what dead weight in churches do? They put a strain on God's heart. But they'll always be there. My favorite story, and I wish I had thought about this. I, 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 I love this story. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because a lot of new people here haven't heard it. My favorite story I heard from a preacher years ago. I never forgot it. 
I'll put it in my own world like it was my story. <clears throat> Let's say that you and your wife come to our church and, and uh, you come here for about a, six months or so and my wife and I come up to you and he says, hey, we'd really like to take you out to dinner. And you're thinking, wow, that was great. We were out dinner with the pastor. And you're thinking, oh, there's a bunch of people. And, he, and your wife says, no, his wife said it was just us, just the four of us. And you said, oh, boy, pastor, going out to eat with the pastor. You know? So we go to a really nice restaurant. I mean, we go to the Hereford House or, you know, one of those places, really nice place. And we're sitting down there and we're talking and you're telling me how much you love the church and, you know, how much the Bible you like it. And we're talking about getting to know each other and all those things. And we spent about an hour and a half there, you know, and I asked if you like the dessert and you would like the dessert, coffee, you know, anything you want. Well, she brings the check here and we looked at each other and I, I look at you and I say, it's been a really a fun time tonight. Now, here's what I need for you to do. My wife is going to go to the ladies room. I want your wife to go with her. I'm going to go to the men's room, and I want you to just slip out in a parking lot. You know where the car is at. Go to the car. The two women will go into the restroom, powder the nose for about five minutes, and then they'll slip out and head out. I'll be the last one out, make sure everything is kosher, and I'll be out there, and we'll get out of there, and we're on our way. And you, you, man, you're so shocked you do it. <laughs> and then on the way home, let me ask you a question. When you're driving home, are you still going to talk about what a great preacher I am? Are you going to probably come to church the next morning? Why, you're going to look at me as something that you're going to lose all respect for me. You're going to think, look at me and say, my, my, what a mess. That, I can't believe that. He actually went in there, ordered that meal, brought us into this, and then he walked out without paying the tab. And I'll tell you what, I, I just cannot believe that a man of God would do that. And I'll tell you what, we are not going back to that church. That'd be your take. But you know what? Some of you come here every Sunday morning, every Thursday night. We cut off sirloin steak about that thick. You got all the prime rib you want. You got anything you want to eat. And you walk out of here on a Sunday morning and never even think about picking up the tab. People don't listen. Listen to me. Oh, never mind. I didn't mean to say that. <clears throat> you know why some of you can't get a good job? You know why some of you can't ever get ahead in your finances? Have you figured it out? You know why you can't keep a job? Ever succeed at what you do? Do you have figured it out yet, have you? I mean, the bottom line is, in the Bible, the job God gives you, you're a missionary, it's to support your family, your missionary work, and the church God sends you to. He provides those things for you. You know, it's the only thing I know that Obama was right on what he's ever said. He's taking a lot of flack right now for what he said a couple of weeks ago when he was talking to the builders, the guys who were building the uh, guys who were uh, the small business guys. And he says, you got a business? You didn't build that yourself. You didn't do that yourself. Somebody helped you. And everybody's that mad about it. But you know what? He's right in the sense of Christianity because whatever you got, your home, your car, whatever you got financially or physically, you didn't do it yourself. God gave it to you. God gave it to you. He gave it to you. Now, let me ask you a question. You're not going to listen to me. Let me ask you a question. As a parent, when you do something really nice for your child and you give them something that may be valuable or cost a lot of money, and you give that to them and you say, here, take this because you're my child and I love you and here it is. I know you wanted this. You needed this. Here it is. And then that child abuses it. That child 
That child doesn't do what's right with it. That child maybe hurts somebody else with it. Or that child just generally abuse it. Now, this is an open question. As a parent, what do you do? Please, louder. Take it away. Well, if you then, being evil, Matthew 7, 11, know how to give good things unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things unto them that ask? He deals with you the same way. And you can't figure it out. You know why you can't figure it out? You won't listen. They ain't going to listen to me. You're not. For some of you will never learn. You know why? Because you won't listen. It's fun, 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 though daddy takes the T-bird away. But it's going to happen. And you can't figure it out. One of the greatest principles that you need to learn, (laughs) I keep saying it. One of the greatest principles that you'll ever get your hands on, I know you won't learn it, is the principle that God will not give you any more till you do what's right with what he's already given you. Because it's a waste of time. But in ministry, same way in ministry. You won't listen. Last week you saw the importance of getting involved when the Bible talks about Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, which strengtheneth me. I can do all things through Christ. You know what that was like? I saw it in your faces. It was like BBs off a stone wall. You will have all the issues you have in your life simply because you won't listen when it comes to fulfilling your obligation to God that he saved you for. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 talks about you presenting your body as a living sacrifice, and it says it's reasonable service for God. And what God calls reasonable, you and your arrogance just simply say, that's unreasonable, God. I don't know what to tell you. You ain't going to listen to me. Now, given all of that, It's no wonder why God's people will never listen to the number one issue about the judgment seat of Christ. Nothing makes me more frustrated in the ministry than preaching about this because it's so simple. And yet 99% of God's people will lose everything that they have. I mean, it's just the way it is. When you go through your Bible, it's talked about all the time. It's called the day of Jesus Christ. It's called the day of Christ. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Paul saw and understood its relevance to us, so he details it out two times to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, who needs to learn these things. In the old days, the old Christians used to call it the Bema Seat. That name was based on the Roman Olympics that took place in Corinth in Paul's day. There was a platform or a high level where you stood above the people and received the crown for winning in the Olympic Games. In the Greek language, bima means level or seat. So the old boys used to call it the bima seat based on the Olympic Games in Corinth. And yet when you look at that, it becomes obvious to me that what Paul is talking about and what he's doing when he writes about our Christian life, he puts it in the context of a first century Roman, uh, Roman lifestyle. When he talks about being a soldier for Christ, it's Ephesians chapter 6. And the guy you got there is a first century Roman soldier. When he talks about the Christian life and doing it, it's always likened to the Olympic Games and running a race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? Verse 25 says, They do it for a corruptible crown, but we do it for an incorruptible one. See that thing? He's standing there looking at those Roman soldiers who was the greatest military power on the earth at that particular point in time, still may be. But he looks at them and he's saying, you know what, if I can get God's people to do for God what these Roman guys do for their God, the emperor, 
Wow, we turned the world around. And then he's watching the Olympics, much like you are today, only 2012 in England. And he's watching that, and he's thinking, and he's watching these guys run, he's watching these guys do all these things, and he says, you know what? That's what Christianity is. He says, if I could get God's people to work as hard, train as hard, get ready for the race of life, to run for God, as these pagans run for their God to get some corruptible crown when God's got an incorruptible one waiting for them. I'm telling you. He says, yet they do it for a corruptible crown. We do it for an incorruptible one. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he told Timothy, he says, any man <clears throat> that strive for the masteries, yet he's not crowned. You're all striving for the masteries. Masteries means to be a master of something. He's telling Timothy, you want to be in a ministry? You want to be a pastor? <clears throat> then there's, you've got to strive for that. But he says, a man is not crowned, judgment seat of Christ. You know he's not, he's not crowned? Because he didn't run lawfully. Got to do it by the book. Now, that's the problem of a lot of little churches out there to get started, but because they didn't do it by the book, everybody wonders why they have the problems they have. They wonder why it goes belly up, wonder why it can't get anything going, wonder why it struggled with everything. I'll tell you why. You didn't run lawfully, pal. It's real simple. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before. Oh, there it is again. You see what Paul said? Get rid of the dead weight. Lay aside every weight and the sin that's as though he beset you. They keep finding it, man. Keep finding it. Now, with that intro, and as I said, we're not going to get deep today. I want to read the first four verses here. And, 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 and my goal is that saying all the things I said about what God's people don't listen to, maybe just one of you there will wake up this morning and listen to this. But I doubt it. Now he says in 5.1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we do groan, earnestly designed to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. If so, be that clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, the overall concept of the judgment seat of Christ, and this is all I want you to grasp today. We're going to get into this in the weeks to come, but this is an intro. And the two things that I want you to understand about the judgment seat of Christ today, that there's two sides to it. There's a doctrinal side, and there's a practical side. That's true of just about everything in life. That's true about everything in life, uh, in the Bible. Uh, you're going to find there's a doctrinal side to it. That'll be the theological side of it, but then there's a practical side to it. It's the difference between law and grace. Uh, it's the difference between the law and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law and the spirit of the law. It's just that simple. Now, here's what he says in verse 1. He says, now this earthly house, this tabernacle, now that's your body. And the verse you want to go along with that is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, if you're putting verses in here. He says, now this earthly house, uh, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands in the heavens. Now, here's what he's saying. This earthly house, this tabernacle, it's your body. It's made of clay, mud. Back in Genesis, when God made Adam, he made him out of the dust of the ground. Adam means red-brown. Uh, he made out of the mud. So we go around saying, my name is mud. That's where it goes back to, okay? just back to that. Now it says that one day, uh, this house, the physical body, is going to be dissolved. In other words, you're going to die. Then Paul says in verse 1, we also know that when that happens, we have a building of God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
That's your soul. Now, at that time of death or the rapture of the church, we simply move out of this old house and move into this new house. Oh, you know what? I know I wasn't going to start preaching, and I'm not going to preach, but I'm going to say this to you. You know, if some of God's people would get as excited about moving into this new house as they do the house they have down here they move into, we'd see a revival. You realize that some of you take care of your lawn better than you take care of the things of God? You realize that some of you spend more money on dog food a month than you do given to the work of God? You realize that some of you take better care of your house. I mean, did you ever see somebody that buys a new house? Oh, man, I mean, I, I'm not fighting it. I'm not fighting it. But I watch it all the time. You walk through that house and you make sure there's got enough closet space. You like the curtain. I don't like the curtain. We're gonna, first thing we're going to do is change. How many times? First thing we're going to do is change the curtains. You want to see the kitchen space. Women like likes the covers. Men want to check out the rec room. They look at there and you say, oh, I like the house, but the color coordination is terrible. <laughs> you want to see the bedroom because it's called a master bedroom and you're the master. <laughs> it's got a two-car, three-car garage. Does it have a garage? Does it have a basement? Does it have a swimming pool? You divide all this stuff up in your mind. You see, I want lots of trees. I want lots of room. It's my dream house. Now, I'm not fighting any of that, but I am telling you this. The example in the Bible over there, back there in 2 Kings, you know when Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived, you know what started his downfall? Everybody thinks it was the women he hung out with. Well, they certainly contributed to it. But what started his downfall is found in 1 Kings chapter 7. You know what it was? It's when he spent more time building his house than he did building the house of the Lord. It tells you in 1 Kings 7, 1, he spent seven years building God's house, but he spent 13 years building his now, I love planet Earth, and I love living down here, but i got to be honest with you, my dream house is not at 8308 Woodson Drive. But it's coming. It's coming. That was the problem with Haggai. Remember? We studied the book of Haggai. We talked about the fact that they haven't built the finished God's house. The reason why they haven't finished it the second time around, because everybody's taking the things that was designed to go into God's house, and they're putting it in their own. Common problem today. I'm not fighting it, but you can't read that, man. I mean, I'm just looking at that thing, and it says, uh, we also know that, uh, he says down there, For in, uh, uh, we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God not made with hands in heaven. For this we grown earth designed to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. You're going to get a new house. I, I, I never understood why you could get so excited about a physical thing. And I'm not saying you shouldn't get excited. But not more than the house that's coming. You spend half as much time dealing with the body in the house that God's given you that you're living in, fixing it up, doing what's right with it, as the house that you live in. You'd be another D.L. Moody. All right, I'm going to move on now. You know, I'm going to go ahead and turn the page. I'm not even going to say that. <clears throat> Back to verse 2. Oh, not for long. This one's going to get me too. <laughs> Verse 2, for in this desiring to be clothed upon. See, for in this are getting our new body. We groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. Here we go. I should have just compiled this and all in one and gave you two for one, but now you're going to get a double whammy. You ever watch what people, God's people groan about? 
The verse says we got there's nothing wrong with being a groaner. People groan about things all the time. And people say, you shouldn't groan. No, you should groan. As a child of God, you ought to groan about the things that, sorry, you ought to groan about the things that you don't get done for God that you want to get done. Like the first six things I talked about. The things that take away from what God has for us. That's what you ought to groan about, but oh no, 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 not us, no, no. We groan about what we don't have. You'll groan this afternoon on the way home. Oh, yes, you will. Don't you lie at me. You'll groan on about the message today. Well, I don't think I like that. <laughs> You'll groan about other people. Some of you will groan about the preacher. You'll groan about your job. Some of you kids will groan about your parents. Some of you will groan about the injustices that have been done to you. Some of you will groan about the fact that I don't have, oh, you know, Facebook and MySpace and Outer Space and your brainless place is, <laughs> is a great thing to see people groan. I'm not kidding. Every, I don't get on it. I'm not, I don't have a MySpace. I don't have, a, I don't have, a, I don't have any of that stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. I think it's all demonic. If you got it, that's all you're okay with yours. I just don't care about it. I don't have the time for it. Uh, some of the time, if, you, if some of you took the time you spent on MySpace and Facebook and put in that book, you'd be a theologian. But people send me stuff. <clears throat> somebody sent me something here a while back about somebody was whining and groaning because they didn't have any friends. And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, first of all, who would want to be your friend? You're the most negative person I ever met. You're always whining about what you don't have. You do absolutely nothing for God. I mean, the Bible says, remember the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, the Bible? The Bible says, he that hath friends must show with himself friendly. We think you're sitting, and a lot of people do that. I've had people that, that uh, uh, I, in my past, I had had it in this church, but I've had people in my past that went into the hospital and didn't tell me they were going into the hospital just so they could groan about the fact, well, Bob never came to see me. <laughs> like I'm supposed to be there, you know, and it's nine o'clock at night, and I'm saying, Joe's in the hospital. <laughs> yes, I got it, Lord. He's in the hospital. <laughs> Room 244. Thank you. <laughs> Give me a break. People will set you up. People, I've had people not come to church just so they'll see if I'll call, find out where they're at. The problem is I know why you're not at church and I don't bother calling you. <laughs> Somebody said one time years ago, and I had the same problem back then as I got now. I wouldn't do this today. I'm much more cultured than I was back then. Somebody come up and said, I ain't been to church for three weeks and you haven't even asked where I've been. I said, that's because you don't do anything. Why I don't need you here? I said, we already done filled your seat three weeks ago. He didn't like it. Of course, the fact that he didn't do anything was irrelevant. Okay. That's the way people are. But they don't listen. They don't listen. Hey, you take all this veneer and this nice smile and all this Brad Pitt's looks and take it all away. I want to tell you something. You got a man with a mission. You got a man that's got one thing he thinks about morning, noon, and night, and every time in between. That is getting the job done for the Lord before he gets back. That's all I care about. You don't care about that? I love you, but you know what? <laughs> oh, well, let's just move on here. <clears throat> listen. Oh, I said it again. You ain't going to listen. <clears throat> of course you won't. But you better listen to what God says and then applying it 
to your life when you listen to it will solve every problem you got. It's okay to groan and moan. Just do it when you don't do what's right with God, not when you don't get what you want. Now look at verse 3. Here it comes. So if that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now from what this chapter and other passages indicate, it's this. That when we stand before the Lord at that Bema seat or judgment seat, that some of God's people are going to stand there naked. And this is the fear. If you read down the chapter, this is what Paul's afraid of. He's concerned over this. He's been talking about groaning and having a desire to be clothed and not found naked. Now, we'll get into all of this when it come in the coming weeks, and I want to break that all down. But today, I, I want you to uh, I want to look into chapter 5 in the intro. I want to explain to you the difference. I want you to have this in your mind, the difference between the doctrinal side of the judgment seat and the practical side. Let's talk about the doctrinal side first. Now, I know that at, at my point of salvation and your point of salvation too, when I got saved and you got saved, <clears throat> the Bible says over and over again that God clothed us in His righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 61.10, it's called the garments of salvation. This is a picture of what happened to Adam and Eve back in the garden. That's a, it's a picture of it. Before they fell and sinned, they were naked and in innocence. But once they, once, they, uh, once they fell, then they knew they were naked. And the first thing they did was to go out and try to cover that naked, making themselves aprons of fig leaves. Now, that's a picture of your nakedness or your sin. And then man, by his own good works, trying to cover his own nakedness by something that he does. God says, that ain't going to work. So God says, dump those suckers and made them coats of skin. And Isaiah 61 calls them garments of salvation. And he closed their nakedness by the innocence of an animal, probably a lamb, dying and covering their nakedness. That's what happened when you got saved. Doctrinally. You see, my own righteousness, my clothing, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, was like filthy rags. But that day I got a new garment to wear. And praise God, we got a robe of righteousness. Now I'm God's child, and from a Bible theological doctrinal standpoint, I'm now, uh, I'm now already seated in heavenly places, and I'm covered by God's righteousness eternally. Now, in your Bible, if you want to get down a little deeper, and we've talked about this before, this is called your standing in Christ. Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2, and Galatians 5, 1. You see, that's your new nature. Right now, if you're saved, your soul, your soul is clothed in God's righteousness doctrinally, eternally. But then we got a practical side, see? Everything in the Bible is going to have a doctrinal and a practical. Kevin, you texted me the other night about a question about a husband and a wife. I didn't answer you back because I don't do Bible questions on text. Otherwise, my phone would have just self-destruct. I can't, you know, I can't. You take me out. I'm just that one back. I just found out last week how to go back. I thought you had to start the whole text over when you made a mistake. So, but the answer to your question is, is that there's a practical side to that and there's a doctrinal side to that. See, I'll help you with it after a while. There's a practical side and there's a doctrinal side. Almost everything in the Bible is that way. But after salvation, the Bible says, now here comes the practical. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see that? Then you're created by God for good works. There's your practical side. See? Oh, yeah, you were clothed in heavenly places with a robe of righteousness doctrinally when you got saved. Absolutely. That's salvation. But the practical side is God saved you to be his workman, and he, he saved you that you under good works. And then you see what he says down there at the end of that verse? 
Not only are you saved for good works, but you're to walk in them. That's the ministry. Then Titus, Titus 3.8 says, after salvation, this is a faithful saying. And these things, I will that affirm constantly that uh, they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. You see it again? He says, now after you get saved, here's the practical side. Have you believed? Have, I mean, uh, just let me ask you a question. How, you can just say amen. How many of you believed in God this morning? Amen? amen? All right. Well, the Bible says if you believe, then he says there, be careful to maintain good works. Do you? Certainly you don't. Most God's people don't. You know why? Because you don't listen. You don't listen. You're going to wind up with a judgment seat of Christ and you're going to lose everything you have. And in the weeks to come, I'm going to show you how fundamentally, absolutely, basically simple it is to show up at the judgment seat of Christ and have everything that God could want. But you know what? You won't listen. You won't listen. And so therefore you'll lose everything. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, the day you get saved, you lay a foundation, then you build upon that foundation. He said, let every man take heed how he buildeth. He said, you're to be a wise master builder. In other words, you're to build on the foundation the day you got saved. Most of God's people never build a thing on the foundation after they get saved. Now, what I'm about to tell you here, this is going to take up all the room on my tombstone. But this is worth a lot of money. In being a Christian, I almost said, listen to me, but in being a Christian, in your life, you just don't build something, but you build toward something. And what you're building toward is the day you stand before God and you give back to him what he had given for you. But you ain't going to get it. So as a Christian concerning your body of the gentleman seat of Christ, you have a doctrinal side, that's your standing, you're clothed in God's righteousness eternally. <clears throat> then you have a practical side. And Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, we've talked about this before. This is your state. This is, the, this is your walk with God. This is what God saved you for. You're to walk in good works. You're to be in the ministry to do what God wants you to do. See, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, <clears throat> the things that you did for God will make the clothes you, you have and wear. I mean, you ever read Proverbs chapter 31, that virtuous woman was a picture of the church? You know what she's doing with her hands? She's making clothes. Oh, yeah, boy. She's making clothes. Paul says in verse 4, he's groaning again. <clears throat> For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. For that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. That mortality might be sprawled up in life. You know, this is a great message for questions. What burdens you today? I already asked you what you groaned about. <clears throat> but what burdens you today? And I know the standard answer, well, I'm burdened for souls. Really? When's the last time you won one to Christ? See, that's a cheap answer. Answers are cheap. It's actions that show. It's like when you tell your wife you love her. You know what she says? That's just talk. Word, love is not a word. Love is an action. And ministry is not a word. It's an action. And when you, when you, when you are burdened about it, you come to the place where it consumes you. I'm not saying you get a robe, shave your head, and get little things on your fingers and go out to the airport with the other hairy, hairy Krishnas. I'm saying there's always a balance in your life, but your life is about the mission God has saved you for. And that's what you do. Nothing else gets in the way. Nobody else gets in the way either. 
You ain't going to listen to me. Paul groans for that new body that Christ might come, but he's groaning that he might be clothed. He's afraid he won't be. Now, I got to tell you something. This really bothers me. If a guy like Paul was afraid he wouldn't be clothed, where are you and I at in this? But you know what? That don't bother you at all. Well, if somebody offered you Royals tickets on a Sunday morning, you'd snap those things so fast and be gone, you wouldn't even think twice about it. You wouldn't even care if we were, had some special Sunday or had this or had that. It would be, look what I got. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the Royals game. I say you shouldn't go on Sunday morning. I'm just saying. I'm not sure what I'm saying, but I'm saying it. <clears throat> Paul groaned for that his new body might be clothed. But God's people, like I said, over the next few weeks, we'll, we'll again and again take apart this great subject. And we'll look at these things. You know, my final thoughts, and I'm, I'm going to be done today. I'm going to be done even early today. Maybe not. <clears throat> I like to read. <clears throat> and I was reading this week, and as I read it, it I really got, <clears throat> really got troubled over it. <clears throat> it really bothered me. <clears throat> And I, it, it almost like it descended on me, and I and I it, it just you know I started out with one attitude reading this, and then suddenly I guess the reality of what I was reading sunk in, and I made the application to it, and then it really 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 bothered me. But I was reading a, a story about it, and maybe some of you know this guy Bertrand Russell. Uh, he was a British uh, philosopher. Uh, he lived. He died in 1970. He, he was born in 1877. A little long time. But he, he was a writer, he was a mathematician, he was a, somewhat of a historian, but, uh, and he was what you would classify all around as, as a social critic. I mean, he looked at society and critiqued it in his own viewpoint. He was a pacifist, so he was against war. He would be classified today as what we know as a liberal today. He was totally against God, Bible, and Christianity. In his writings, he championed humanistic ideas, much like the liberals do today. He actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1950. He was awarded that prize for his great writings on <laughs> the freedom of man's thinking, freedom of thought, you know. <clears throat> As I read this thing, <clears throat> I read in his book that he wrote, Man's Free World. I didn't read the book. It was, uh, I was reading some things about him, and this was in here. And in that, he stated his view of life. And it was incredible. Here's a man who lived most of his life, 93 years of age, without God, thinking that he was his own God, that man made the place a better place to live. He philosophized about everything, no God. He couldn't see God in history. He couldn't see God in math. He couldn't see God in society. He couldn't see God in war and understand war. He couldn't see anything about God in the Bible. And after 93 years, this is what he summed up life on planet Earth to be. He said this, and I thought this was amazing. The life of man is a long march through the dark of night, tortured by weariness and pain, toward a goal that very few will ever attain or hope to reach but a march through the darkness in which none can tarry or stop. 
You know, and I, and I, when I read that and I thought to myself, that is one of the greatest remarkable descriptions of the life of a man without God. And at that point, it's when it hit me. And it really bummed me out. And yet I thought to myself, you know what? That is the same description of 99% of most of God's people. Life for you is just a long march through total darkness, isn't it? There's never any light at the end of the tunnel. You just go from the proverbial frying pan to the fire. You just go from one problem to another. Life for you is endless. It's a torture of what? Disappointment, discontentment, broken relationships, broken marriages, lost kids. It turns into depression. It turns into anxiety, which turns you to drugs, which turns you to alcohol. And it's an endless cycle of problems and issues. And the goals of your life become dashed to pieces on the rocks of this old world. Yet day after day after day, the drudgery of that life goes on. All because you won't listen. All because God has an alternative program for you, but you just won't listen. He's got a solution for every issue you face. He's got, a, he's got an answer for every problem you're up against, but you just won't listen. And then after a life of misery and failure and heartache, then you meet God face to face. And there face the shame and embarrassment of losing everything you could have had simply because, yes, you would not listen. And you had to do it your way. You see, the mark of a successful Christian, and I've said it many, many times, is simply a man or a woman who gets saved and then does the rest of their life what God has called them to do. That would be ministry in a New Testament local church. It's giving back to him for all he's given to us. As 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was yet rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. You see, he gave it all up for us. He did. And this is what you won't listen to. He gave it all up for you and me. He gave it all up for you. You know what your problem is today? And I love you. And all these things we talked about today are absolutely the truth. This is why I didn't want to preach it. I get so frustrated about the judgment seat of Christ because I look at you here, I see the potential you have, I see what you could do, and I know you're going to throw it all away. And it simply comes down to the fact that you won't listen. He gave everything up for you, and you will give nothing up for him. There lies your problem. The judgment seat of Christ, in its basic, most simple form, from the practical side, is you and me standing there recognizing what he did for me and then becoming a man with a mission. Becoming a man or a woman that none of your godless friends, Christian or non-Christian, are going to keep you from filling it. Your own worst enemy, you're going to put at bay. Your worst, very worst enemy, you're going to keep at bay. You know who that person is? It's you. And you're going to, you're going to, you're going to strap it down under the principles of the Word of God 
You're going to get in that book. You're going to learn. You're going to realize that there are people in Christianity and there's people in this church that simply you say, you know what? I like you and you're a nice person, but you and I are on the same wavelength. And if I hang out with you, I'm going to become like you. And I don't want to be like you. But you won't listen. Forty-some years in the ministry, if somebody would ask me what is the number one thing God's people won't do, that answer was so fast and so quick, it's they won't listen. You won't. We're just like Israel. You're caught up in all you've got and all you want. And when your problems come into your life, when somebody dies or somebody gets sick, oh, it's then pull on the heartstrings of God, help me, help me. And then you go right back to your old self-serving ways. And God's relevated to the closet. That's God's people today. If I didn't see my own self in that and have to deal with that every day of my life, I'd have no place for you. But I understand we're all human. We all make mistakes. Because you don't do what's right with the Word of God doesn't give me the right not to. So next week, we'll preach on the judgment seat of Christ. We'll take every aspect of it apart. Somebody will say after the message today, well, you already said they won't listen. I ain't doing it for the people that don't listen. I'll do it for the one or two that will listen. Because there's coming a day when God is probably going to have to do something in this church that's going to make everybody fish and cut bait. And for me, don't take it personal. I got a job to do. And if you're on board with that job, I love you to death. If you're a young Christian here, I'm not ta- even talking to you. If you're a visitor today, I'm not talking to you. I will work, spend whatever time it takes to get you where you need to be. But let's be honest today. In lieu of the judgment seat of Christ, can we be honest? Can we talk today? There's some of you God's people in here been here four, five, six, seven years. You don't give a flying flip about the ministry. I love you. I love you. I love you to death. But I don't want you in my foxhole. I just shouldn't take a big old German shepherd down there and hold off the line. But that's the way it is. It wouldn't change. Whatever church it would be, it wouldn't change. You know why? Because that's where God's people are today. And I've told you this the way I told you today. Try to make it easy. Try to just talk to you. Try to pour my heart out to you over something that frustrates the fire out of me. When I see some of you sit here today that I know the potential you got and you just going to keep it for yourself. Done. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for that book. Lord, let uh, everything that I said today be taken in the spirit by which I said it. I love these people. 